0: listening to the Theology for the Church podcast with Dr. Caleb Leonard, a resource for the church that aims to help Christians explore how Christian doctrine framed by the biblical story is to be applied to the Christian life in the context of the local church. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Theology for the Church podcast. Today I'm joined by Dr. Greg Lanier, Professor of New Testament at Reformed Theological Seminary to discuss the topic of the New Testament use of the Old Testament via his recent book on the subject, Old Made New, A Guide to the New Testament Use of the Old Testament. Dr. Lanier, welcome to the show, and thank you for joining me for this conversation.
1: Thanks for having me. Good to be with you.
0: you. Before we jump into specific questions about our topic, would you mind sharing a little bit more about yourself, for our listeners? how did How did you get where you are today? family, educational background, uh, maybe just brief kind of past and current ministry involvement in, in those type of things?
1: Yeah, sure. So my main uh, my main job here is at uh, Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando. So I've been on faculty here for almost seven years, teach mostly New Testament and a variety of other classes as well. I also serve as the academic dean for our global campus. That's a relatively new hat I wear. And then uh, kind of my side gig, if you will, my side hustle in today's hustle culture, my nights and weekends, is yeah. as associate, <laughs> yeah, associate pastor at a Presbyterian church in Lake Mary, which is just north of Orlando. So I do a variety of things there. It's called River Oaks Church. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I've been been in Orlando with my family for about, seven years I got a wife Kate and three daughters uh, 13, 11 and seven and a dog so it was somewhat recent addition to the family. Uh, I, uh, I held out for over a decade but they wore me down <laughs> um, and so I came from uh, came to RTS from uh, my doctoral studies overseas in the UK and prior to that I studied RTS Charlotte. But uh, before I got into ministry type stuff, I was working in business in various uh, capacities in Atlanta, Birmingham, Charlotte, and uh, yeah. So it's kind of a winding path to get here. Went to UNC Chapel Hill. Uh, so don't make any jokes about the NCAA tournament. Try Didn't not make to it this year. Yeah. <laughs> so um, yeah. So that's the that's the short version of it.
0: Awesome. I appreciate you sharing that with us. Um, in 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 your book, old made new. Uh, I thought it was really fun, accessible, and engaging read. I, I really appreciate this book, and as a pastor, um, I'll be recommending it you know, frequently and using it for our Bible teacher training uh, at our church. It's, it's brief, but it's powerful, and I think it equips readers well with some essential skills that, that I'm excited to talk with you a little bit about. But before we jump in too far, uh, I'm just curious, what, what made you want to write uh, this book, uh, who is your primary audience, and what was your primary
1: aim in creating this resource? Yeah, well, I appreciate the kind words. And actually, sort of what you just described in terms of using it for training up Bible study leaders and that kind of thing is, is by and large, the, the target audience. Um, this this field has been of interest to me really since the seminary, even before then, actually, just as a sort of informed layperson who liked to read books, And uh, actually, my doctoral work and some of my research specialties now deal with this field. But uh, one of the kind of hazards of this area of the use of the Old Testament and the New is that there's so much great stuff that's been done over the past 20, 30 years um, on this particular topic. There's kind of been a rebirth in this area in some respects. Uh, especially in terms of sort of understanding the old testament uh how how the new testament uses the old testament to express uh or it's sort of an an anticipation of jesus which is really really sort of life-giving and exciting for a lot of people especially if you grew up in a church that kind of downplayed the old testament uh but but the problem is so much of this great research has been super technical uh we're talking you know 400 page monographs, uh, for like a PhD that is not meant for an average audience. And it might be on like one verse that is used in (laughs) Romans or it's, uh, it's journal articles that most people don't read. And, uh, as I've taught on it in church context at, at my church, but elsewhere, uh, I was like, you know, it really would be nice if there was some book that I could, that, that could teach this and and get this whole idea across in a way that's accessible to my mom, you know? Um, and as I was thinking through, okay, well, is there something like this out there and talking with Crossway who published it? I was like, I don't think that, I don't think this exists surprisingly for all the things that have been done. there, There are some kind of intermediate books, um, but many of them are even for my master's level students are really hard to to access, and I've had students just complain that they're even for them it's too hard to read. So it's like, well, I'll give it a shot and try to write something that will be useful to the, to sort of the normal folks in the pew. Uh, really, as kind of a, a gateway to to more study, more than anything, it's not meant to be the the final voice on the matter, but hopefully, it's gonna give some people some simple, memorable tools that they can kind of probe this vein, because I've found it personally really life-giving, and I hope others do as well. It's sort of really, because so ultimately the goal is uh, to provide a, a book that becomes foundational for changing the way you read the whole Bible. Um, it's not, it doesn't cover every verse, doesn't cover everything, but it's mainly just trying to at least give a set of tools and a certain approach that will really shape the way you read Especially the New Testament, but the Old Testament as well. Uh, kind of forever after that. That's kind of the goal, um, and try to keep it accessible. Try to write a book on this topic without using b- big fancy words. You know, that was a goal of mine as well, uh, to try to make it robust but uh, not inaccessible to a to a normal readership. So that's that was kind of the goal.
0: Yeah, and I and I think you know, at least for at least for me, I, I think that's a, a goal that was accomplished uh, by this. So I'm excited to um, get it in the hands of, of lots of other people. And so you've kind of maybe answered this a little bit already, but just kind of curious, what, why, does, why does the topic of the New Testament use of the Old Testament matter for every Christian? And how is our understanding of the New Testament hindered by Old Testament illiteracy?
1: Yeah, I mean, actually, that, that latter point you mentioned is, is probably the the big issue. You know, every every few years we have surveys that come out by, you know, various groups that do these kinds of surveys about doctrine and, you know, what are the average kind of self-identifying Bible-believing Christians, what do they think about these topics? And, uh, you know, one of them is, do they believe that Jesus is fully God or not? And, you know, that that's becoming less and less apparent, and so I wrote a book on that topic as well, um, but... Uh, one of the big blind spots that, that I grew up with—I I, I was uh, this was a problem in my own kind of church upbringing—is uh, it's just a general um, lack of thorough teaching of the Old Testament. And I understand why, you know, you, you open up Leviticus, you open up Numbers, and it's a very foreign world that you're dealing with. And so what you know, so I think a lot of Christians—and this is not just a problem in in our country—I think this is a general issue uh, broadly speaking. Um the Old Testament's hard uh and it presents especially in our contemporary context uh, particular challenges related to human sexuality that kind of stuff it just makes it easy to want to distance yourself from the Old Testament or you have uh churches that explicitly say hey we don't really care too much about the Old Testament they don't put it this crassly but like look we're New Testament Christians we don't really care about the Old Testament uh whole whole movements like just don't even bother preaching through the Old Testament and so you got that. There's a lot of reasons why you might have the average churchgoer today uh be malformed or under informed about the Old Testament. And and sometimes that could be their own lack of interest, or it could be, you know, poor instruction, poor modeling for them. Uh and so that that I think is fundamentally the issue um, that people often uh look at the Bible, the Old Testament as not relevant or boring or both. Uh the unfortunate thing is for, for, for holding that position, the, the the unfortunate reality is the New Testament doesn't give us that option. Um, if you want to claim to be a New Testament Christian and all you care about is Matthew through Revelation, which I get again, I'm not I'm not faulting people necessarily for having that view. It could be their mentors who have uh, kind of led them astray in that respect. Uh, the, the the people who wrote those very books don't present that as a thing. Right, that's not a Christian option mm-hmm. to only have uh, a New Testament. And we see this, for instance, you know, as soon as you open the New Testament, so you you give a new Christian, hey, hey, here's this Bible. I want you to meet Jesus. Why don't you start reading the Gospels? Like, all right, well, I'll just open up Matthew. And so they open up Matthew. What do you find on the very first uh, verse of uh, this Gospel about Jesus that's in the New Testament? You know, the beginning of the genealogy uh, of Jesus, the uh, son of David, son of Abraham. You're like, wait a second. Why? Why is it beginning with the genealogy? That's not a thing that i'm gonna like watch on netflix right where's the chosen Yeah. (laughs) um and who is this david guy who is this abraham guy and matthew so it's like all right i'm gonna read about this jesus and i'm gonna get hit with like 16 verses of names that i've never heard of before and that's straight from the old testament all right so you kind of strike out when you want to read matthew and and get away from the old testament because the first thing he does is hit you with the old testament so he's like all right well i'll turn to mark then let me read mark i found out about jesus and mark what does mark do Mark begins with uh, this combined quotation of Isaiah and Malachi at the very beginning. He says, all right, you want to know about Jesus? You got to go to Isaiah and Malachi. I'm like, well, all right, can't get away from the Old Testament. Let me try Luke. All right, let me try Luke. He flipped to Luke, and the first two chapters are just like saturated with all this Old Testament stuff. Not always quotations, but it's temple imagery, all these different things. Like, well, can't get away from the Old Testament. And Luke, let me try John. And what is the first chapter of John? This massive riff on Genesis 1. Uh, in the beginning, kind of language and that kind of thing. So you turn to Acts, and what's the first major scene in Acts? A big sermon on Joel from the Old Testament. So you turn to Romans, and Romans just—you know—Paul just backs up the dump truck of Old Testament. Says, "I'm going to hit you with like a hundred quotations of the Old Testament to describe yeah. the gospel." <laughs> and so you just keep going, right? You're like, "Well, I can't get away from this Old Testament thing," but I was told that the Old Testament doesn't matter. You go to Galatians. Galatians is a massive proof of justification using Genesis and other passages. You go to 1 Corinthians, which is written to an ostensibly pagan background audience, and he just keeps going back to the Old Testament. You're like, fine, I'm going to go to Revelation, and Revelation never quotes the Old Testament because you make the argument that uh, the book of Revelation, which, of course, is always fascinating to read and debated, but you can make the case that the book with the highest amount of Old Testament content, even though it never explicitly tells you that, is Revelation. And it ends uh, with this beautiful retelling of Genesis and Isaiah. point of all that is, the reason why the Old Testament matters for the average Christian is that you can't read the New Testament without it. And they don't let you uh, read their writings without mm-hmm. going back mm-hmm. to the Old Testament over and over again. You can't make it really any sense. Any, essentially, I mean, I, I think I, I try to kind of prove this out in the book. But any doctrine that matters, uh, and they all matter, but like so I'm sort of putting that rhetorically, but any any key truth that matters in the New Testament um, in some way, shape or form, they defend it, prove it, detail it out, story it if you will, using the Old Testament. And so as a uh, if you're a Christian who hasn't been taught well in the Old Testament, the Old Testament is this kind of distant thing and you've heard of Moses and you've heard of Daniel and that's about it then that really impoverishes your reading of the New Testament and that's the fundamental issue I think is that you can't make any sense of the New Testament without the Old Testament uh, cuz they they just don't they, it's just not an option on the table uh, cuz that was their bible and so if they're going to sort of theologize based on scripture and teach us to do that what bible are they going to use they're going to use the Old Testament um, and so that that's kind of the motivation behind um, or or that's the so I think the kind of sociological need for something like this.
0: Yeah, no, it's a a really, really good argument and some really key points there that I think kind of springboards us right into what you talk about in chapter one. So in chapter one of your book, you give us uh, the tools of the trade, right? These three steps that should be used anytime we study a New Testament passage that draws on an Old Testament passage, right? So if this is why it's important, we should know how to do it and engage the material well, right? So these three steps would be one, identifying the passage, two, double-click on the Old Testament, and then three, listen to the remix. So would you briefly explain these steps to us and then Um, If if you're up for it or it's helpful, maybe uh, share an example from Scripture so our listeners can get a taste of of what that process looks like. And then maybe a little bit of nuance uh,
1: within each of those steps. Yeah, sure. Um, Yeah, I'd mentioned previously that there are a a handful of books that have been, uh, maybe a very small handful of books, that have been written in this general vein. And and probably the most popular is actually by a colleague of mine named Greg Beal. And um, and his, his pitch pitched more at sort of an intermediate level. But in his book, he gives nine steps. And so I was like, well, nine, nine is a lot. <laughs> nine is hard to remember, so I'm going to cut it down to three. Uh, what it, and, and fundamentally, what I'm trying to do is, uh, if I had to really kind of cut to the chase, the basic principle that I'm simply trying to get people to do is when you're reading the New Testament, because, again, it, you have to kind of be clear what this book is about. This book isn't about how to read the New Testament. There's plenty of books out there on that. Nor is it a book on how to read the Old Testament. There's plenty of books by your Nancy Guthrie's and, and lots of people out there on those kinds of books. So it's not that, like how to read Genesis. That's not my goal. Uh, this is more like, how do you read the intersection of those two? Um, and so the fundamental discipline that I'm trying to get people to do when they're reading through Matthew, as an example, is when you see in your Bible, uh, and certain certain translations do a better job of this than others in terms of marking them, but you see, like, as it is written, uh, or this happened to fulfill the word of Jeremiah or whatever. You. you see that kind of stuff. Don't just keep going. That's basically the idea. I mean, do keep going at some point, but, like, stop. Go look that up and study that and then try to think through why did Matthew or Paul or John, or whomever, why did they use that passage? At the end of the day, that's all I'm trying to get people to do. I've had to really sort of condense it down. Is, uh, and I tell my, my congregants this all the time. All I'm really trying to get you is to go left in your Bible, like to flip left, go back to Joel or wherever, study it and then see what Paul is, is doing with it. Uh, and so those three steps are really um, not rocket science. And, and I mentioned in the book that like yeah, I could have made it fancier and I could have used fancy terminology, but I was just trying to think of something that would be helpful that actually people would do. Uh, because even as a paid professional, like, I don't have time to do the nine steps every time. I got life's too short, you know, but I could do these three. And so it's basically like yeah. figure out when it happens. So the step one is this. When you're reading in something in the New Testament, uh, using your footnotes, using quotation marks or certain, tra- you know, certain Bibles that do bold or italics, depends on what kind of Bible you're using. Uh, and you see, oh, they, they flag this as some sort of quotation, the den of robbers and in, in Luke or what have you. Uh, notice, so the first step is just notice that, and notice what the New Testament authors doing. Do they explicitly say this happened uh, to fulfill the word of the prophets, or do they just sort of throw it out there really subtly? And you kind of they're kind of trusting that you're going to pick it up uh, because they, they want to be a little bit more um, kind of delicate. They're kind of floating it out there for those who have ears to hear, if you will. And so the first step is like to figure that out, figure out sort of. Um, do they introduce it explicitly or not? Uh, where does this fit in kind of the flow of the argument? That kind of thing. So that's step one. And nine times out of 10, it's not too hard to do this step. There are times when I get frustrated when I'm like, oh, wait a second. This is a quotation of Genesis, but this particular Bible didn't mark it that way. Maybe the people who edited it maybe didn't think it was one or something like that. So, But in general, it's pretty clear if you have a good study Bible, it'll it'll get most of these. And then there's an appendix in, in the book that picks up a lot of them as well. Uh, so step one is that. That's kind of the easiest step. Step two, and I, you know, I'm trying to think of what, what's a clever way to, to name these things. Uh, identify is not terribly clever, but that's what I came up with. Um, the second step, the double clicking, or you could say, you know, pinch zoom or something like that. The basic idea is if Paul or if if Luke, whomever, if they have put their finger on an Old Testament passage, the the most important thing we can do in this process is double click on that as if it were like a hyperlink and go to that passage, Uh, go look up at least the chapter. um, And hopefully, you know, and again, this doesn't have to take a whole afternoon, right? This could take five minutes, go look up the chapter, read the chapter, figure out which verse they're specifically drawing on or multiple verses, but see what's the broader context. Where are we in the Bible? Oh, this is from numbers. Oh, this is from Isaiah. Okay, maybe you might have to look up my study Bible. Okay, what's Isaiah about? When are we talking about? What's happening in the life of Israel at this point in time? Why does it matter? To sort of prompt your thinking of, okay, if I'm Paul, why would I go to this passage? Uh, what is that telling me about where we are in the story? What's God been up to? What's Israel been up to? And what are the things that could have prompted one of the apostolic writers to, to draw on this verse? And for most, that's going to be the hardest step. Because if Paul or John is drawing on Zechariah, you know, when's the last time we did a sermon series on Zechariah? Uh, Mm -hmm. Actually, our church (laughs) did not too long ago. But um, that's, and and for the average Bible reader, um, and I've been there, I get it. Uh, I just happen to be, you know, in the field now, so I do this for a living. But I, I totally get, like, that's a very difficult thing to do. It's like, this is intimidating. I don't know anything about it. I don't even know how to pronounce this book's name. Like, I don't want admit that, but I don't know how to say Habakkuk.
0: <laughs> yeah, um,
1: yeah. Right? And so, but, but, but what I'm trying to encourage folks to do is just try and just go and spend four minutes and read Isaiah 49 when it's quoted in Acts 13. And it may not make all this. It may not make all this sense in the world. That's okay. Hopefully, it's still encouraging because God's still speaking to you through His Word in that way. But the next time you go and do that, you know a little bit more. And the next time you go and learn a little more, you sort of partly taking the long view here. It's like I've got to rebuild my entire understanding of the Old Testament through this process, or like at least this can be a way to do that. Uh, so you're going to ask questions. Okay, what's happening in the Old Testament at this point in time? Uh, why does it matter? and so on. And then the final step, as you mentioned, is listening to the remix. And I I was trying to pin down, okay, what's a helpful metaphor to describe what's happening? And I landed on remix because, uh, at least in my own theological persuasion, uh, the New Testament authors, when they're drawing on the Old Testament, they're not simply copying and pasting, nor, however, are they like Finding like this magical decoder ring kind of approach to the Old Testament—that's like, oh, this is a whole new thing, and uh, I'm giving you like the guru insider knowledge. It's—it's. It's, I'm persuaded that they're really just they're remixing uh, the Old Testament in the sense that they're and a, and a good remix, as I talk about in the book, a good remix is simultaneously, simultaneously really respectful to the original where you can identify it. Oh yeah, this is the Beatles or whatever. Uh, But it's not just copying and pasting the song. There is new light that has come into the picture because of the work of Jesus, because we're on the other side of the resurrection. And that does help us understand the Old Testament better. And so it's a remix in that sense, that they're drawing out, oh, here's some rhythms and some rhymes and some melodies that maybe you missed the first time around. We're going to accentuate that in the remix in light of Christ being the kind of one who changes the game. So Essentially, what you're trying to do when you're in Romans or Galatians or Philippians or whatever, say, okay, what new light has the work of Jesus brought into the picture here? And how are they amplifying that? How is it, you know, pushing things forward in terms of here's what God is doing with his covenant people now in light of the old and sort of asking those kinds of questions as well. So that's the kind of basics behind the three steps. I don't, I'll let you, I'll pause and let you, if you wanted to respond anything before I can I can give you an example uh, but go ahead if you had any. Yeah, no, that's just, yeah, that's,
0: that's super, you know, super helpful. And I think just remembering, you know, particularly like you said, it's a, you know, this is a journey. It's, it's uh, uh hopefully I'm reading Isaiah 49 more than once in my life. Right. That right. um, there there may be times when it's like, man, I've got a couple hours and I'm just really engaged in this topic and I really want to study, you know, and then there's other times where it's like, look, I'm a, you know, let, let's say you know it's a it's a busy mom who's got 15-20 minutes uh, to, to read right can still be fruitful to apply these steps they're easily uh, rememberable mm-hmm. and easy to implement and just letting that be you know a word of encouragement that this is a, a lifelong journey till we go home to be with the Lord and just to see those as kind of foundational, uh, building blocks. No matter how much how much time you have, everyone can engage in, in these ways. So yeah. yeah, um, go for it if you want to share an example or yeah, and, and just to out.
1: just to sort of underscore what you said, my uh, my church's women's Bible study. We have two different women's Bible studies at the moment, and they're they're actually going through the book, um, which I really appreciated. And, and I I did a little kind of kickoff for them. And uh, there was some fear and trepidation in the, in the room uh, because this is a, this particular book and, and this kind of exercise is different than most of the things that are out there that are kind of off the shelf. Here's a Bible study on this book or topic. Uh, and those are all fine. And, and I'm really appreciative. There's so many things out there that, that do that well and, um, and, and truly am. Uh, and I said, you know that. So I want you to keep doing that. But for this season, you're gonna. I want you to trust the process. That fundamentally, what I'm trying to do is is teach you a skill through this book and through the you know study guide that goes with it and so forth. Teach you a skill, not so much content, but teach you a whole new way. And it's not even new. It's really the old way of studying God's word. That it may, maybe it's not gonna like you sit down and you do it for a, a passage and it sort of. It gives you what you need to get through that day, right? Which is how many people approach reading the Bible, which which is a a, a valid way to approach the Bible. Uh, it's like it, it may not do that; it may not be the warm fuzzies, right? Uh, and I hope I hope it is, but it may not be. But if you take the long view, I'm hoping to sort of get you to a whole another level where your Bible reading over the long for 50 years becomes more mature and more robust. And so there's maybe maybe there's a short term loss of, I, I'm, you know, the book is not going to be like, here's how to raise your kids better. That's not this kind of book. Uh, but my hope is you do this and then you get better at reading those kinds of books and doing those kinds of studies and, and, and grappling with God's word for the long haul better. Uh, so that's that's kind of background in terms of an example. This is one that I actually use with that Bible studies in Matthew chapter two, uh, where uh, in the birth narrative of Jesus in Matthew, uh, he, he has a handful of Old Testament passages, such as the virgin birth in Isaiah 7 and so on. But the weirdest one is when Herod uh, goes about this process of trying to find the, the you know, baby boys in Bethlehem who, uh, who could be this like, newborn king because he's trying to figure out who it is. This is an age without social media and you know, social security cards or whatever. And so, like, to be safe, to try to snuff out Jesus, he's like, I'm just going to kill all the recently born kids in Bethlehem. And it's a terrible scene, the slaughter of the innocents, as we call it, in Bethlehem. Uh, But then Matthew, somewhat surprisingly, says this happened. uh, This is Matthew 2, 17, to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. So there's our identification step, right? Okay, this has got to be some quotation or citation from Jeremiah. Got it. That one's pretty easy. Um, and then you just look at your footnotes to figure out which one it is. But here's what he says. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And then he moves on to say, and then you know, Joseph and Mary, they, they, they're in Egypt. They come back from Egypt and, and life goes on. So, so Jesus escapes the slaughter and the innocence. And so if you're reading Matthew 2, and you're like, all right, Matthew thinks this is big enough for him to like prove out the the death of all these baby boys in Bethlehem from the Old Testament, but I mean, to be honest with you, you read that quotation, you're like I have no idea why he went there, right? If at a first pass reading, this is a the- classic example where if you're mm-hmm. if you're trying to read the birth narrative of jesus and like i just want to find out about what happens to jesus
0: yeah <laughs>
1: does he survive right uh and you're like uh, this, i have no idea what this is about right you're like i don't you even know where this is from i mean he's apparently from isaiah uh excuse me jeremiah um what why did matthew do this and so if i am like again the the busy dad about to go to work i'm not gonna go look that up and i'm just gonna like all right matthew whatever that's fine i don't know what that is about Uh, Because I don't know where or even what a Ramah is. And I vaguely, other than like friends, I don't know who Rachel is. uh, And she's not the one from Friends. Um, And so this is a classic place where it's like, I'm just going to move on. This isn't worth my time. Uh, I have no idea why this is. And so that, that would be sad because there's actually something really interesting that's happening here. So if you did happen to go look this up. Uh, and you did step two, you double-clicked on that. Uh, This is from Jeremiah 31, which, uh, as you know, is not a small chapter in Jeremiah. And this is one of those kinds of things where, as a church, uh, as a pastor of a church, I'm trying to equip my people to think about the Old Testament in a robust way. And there are certain key chapters in the Old Testament that everybody should know about, such as, you know, Genesis 3 and the the fall and this promise of a a future serpent-crushing seed of the woman— Genesis 15, Abraham and his imputed righteousness by faith, and so on. And Jeremiah 31 would make that list. You know, it's the New Covenant passage. It's a very, very big deal. So this is not a small thing that Matthew is going to Jeremiah 31. And in fact, just knowing that alone, at least is half the battle of like, oh, Matthew's quoting a very important passage from Jeremiah. It's not some like B-side that doesn't matter. I mean, okay, to be clear, all of it matters, but certain chapters are <laughs> sure. uh, have more central significance than others. Okay. Well, if you read Jeremiah 31 and I won't do it in full, um, but it's essentially it goes good news, bad news, good news. The good news in Jeremiah 31 at the very beginning is that God promises that he has scattered his people. He's brought this judgment upon them, which implies that you know what that is, by the way. And so this is where you got to like go look it up on Wikipedia. If you haven't been instructed very well in the old Testament. like, oh, yeah, there was this exile and the bad guys took over uh, Israel, in this case, Judah. Exiled them, destroyed the temple. Those are kind of the basic things. As a pastor, I'm sure you're trying to equip people with, like, oh, here's the basic storyline of the Bible. So that's where we are. So God is gonna, He scattered His people, but the good news is He is going to uh, bring them back, and He's going to shepherd them as His flock. So that's Jeremiah 31:10. But then there's the bad news. He says uh, it's going to get bad. Verse 15. Then He says, voices heard in Ramah, lamentation, bitter weeping, Rachel's weeping for her children, et cetera. That's what Matthew quotes. And then it moves to more good news. God actually says to Rachel, keep your voice from weeping. Keep your eye from tears. These children will come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for you. I'm going to bring the people back. So this that's the structure of the passage. It goes bad news, good news, bad news. Excuse me. Good news, bad news, good news. Um, God is going to rescue his people. It's going to be bad, but God is going to rescue his people. So that's the basic context. Now you're still wondering though at this point, well, why does matthew draw on this and that key verse there is a voice is heard in ramah and then uh, the other key part of the equation is rachel weeping for her children that's where you got to sort of do a little bit of bible sleuth work and again it doesn't have to take all day you can use a concordance you can just straight up wikipedia this it's not like super duper scientific neuroscience knowledge here rachel of course is whom jacob's favorite bride right so he was uh there was Rachel and Leah, and uh, Rachel was the one that he liked the most, right? And um, so she was one of the sort of patriarchal grandmothers, if you will. She's a matriarch yeah. of God. Now, she's long dead by the time Jeremiah's writing. Of course, she's long dead by the time Jer- uh, Matthew's writing. But Rachel is um, one of the sort of matriarchs of Israel, and and she happened to give birth to Benjamin, and that's actually quite significant. Again, you go look this up, and you figure, oh, yeah, she was the one who gave birth to Benjamin. Benjamin uh, was part of the southern kingdom. The tribe of Benjamin was part of the southern kingdom uh, alongside Judah. So the two, two uh, tribes that had the southern kingdom in the Old Testament were uh, Judah and Benjamin. And Rachel is the mother of Benjamin. So, and in fact, she died giving birth to him. So at this point, you're wondering, All right, uh, Mr. Lanier, please land the plane here. I'm kind of getting lost. Well, it's actually quite interesting. Uh, when Rachel gave birth to Benjamin, she died. And Jacob buried her near Bethlehem, Bethlehem Ephrathah. She was buried just outside of Bethlehem. And so that's the kind of Genesis backstory. She gives birth to one of the tribes, one of the key tribes that becomes part of the southern kingdom. She dies giving birth and she was buried in Bethlehem. Fast forward several centuries and you have these bad guys, the Babylonians, are taking over the southern kingdom. And that's where you sort of go and you Google, where is Ramah? Because that's where the voice is heard. And you find out later on in Jeremiah that Ramah was the city where all of these people from Judah and Benjamin were carried off. And they sort of staged them in Ramah. That's the city where they sort of held them captive before they shipped them off to Babylonia. Uh, everyone was gathered by the Babylonian army at Ramah, and then they were deported into Babylon. This is in Jeremiah 40. And so what Jeremiah is saying is that when the captive Israelites from this tribe of Benjamin, tribe of Judah, uh, when they are being deported, they are gathered in Ramah, and he says, Rachel, their mother, is weeping for them. That's what's happening in Jeremiah 31, metaphorically from the grave. Uh, so she, as the one who kind of gave birth to them, so to speak, hundreds of years before she's weeping because her children are being gathered at Ramah to be taken into exile by this foreign power. Who's going to kill many of them, devastate the land and so forth. Now, why does Matthew go there then? And this is where the sunlight starts to come in on the conversation. Cause all that this, and by the way, this is one of the most complicated ones. So the rest of them are a lot easier. Sure. This is like the worst one. But that's why I would yeah. to picked this one because <laughs> at that point your brain, your head should be hurting. And that's true. Uh, but again, we got Rachel as the mother of the, the tribe. The tribe is now being exiled. They're at Ramah. Rachel metaphorically is weeping because her children are no more and they're going to be taken off and it's, and it looks bleak, right? But remember, God said it's going to get better. So Matthew comes on the scene and what's happening in Rachel's burial town, Bethlehem, history's repeating itself. That's what Matthew sees. He's like, wait a second we've got this foreign power cuz Herod was at best half Jewish he was really just a lackey of the Roman empire the jews are under roman power and herod is now once again slaughtering all of these israelite boys and so rachel from the grave right outside the city is weeping over her children again it's like history is repeating itself bad news are hap- uh, bad news is happening uh, her children are now being slaughtered just like Hundreds of years before, under the battle it's just a different, just a different person in power who's doing it, and uh, and so the gospel, good news in this citation is, yeah, it looks pretty bad, right? Uh, and, and it's terrible. It's terrible that it's probably maybe a dozen. It's not like you know, hundreds. It's not a big town. It's still bad. Uh, there in Bethlehem is part of it's that part of the, like the peanuts Christmas story that we don't talk about. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so Matthew says history is repeating itself. Rachel's weeping for these baby boys in Bethlehem because uh, she's buried there uh, and they're her spiritual offspring. But the good news is who's been born, the one who's going to deliver them, the one who is going to actually bring these through you know through his saving work, He's going to bring the good news to bear. And of course that then is what Matthew that he's going to tell that story for the next 26 chapters. He's going to tell the story of now here's how Jesus comes to save the day. And so that's a very complicated maneuver, but it, it, you know if you can track with that one, uh, the rest of them are a lot easier, but that one I think to me is really fascinating because you don't make any sense of that Matthew quotation unless you actually dig in and say, "Wait a second, what's happening in Jeremiah?" And then from Jeremiah, you go back to Genesis uh, to figure out who Rachel is and where's Ramah and all that kind of stuff. And and it for me, it like it really clicks when you realize, "Oh, this is what's happening." Matthew sees history repeating itself, but the good news is Jesus is now the the born deliverer who's going to save the day, basically. So that's the kind of the the flow of the story, if you will, is going to finally reach its apex when Jesus. Uh, starts his ministry so there you go probably more than you bargained for but
0: <laughs> no that's that's great it's super super helpful sometimes working from the, the the most complex makes it seem like oh okay like yeah that's complicated but it, I, it, there's there are ones that are steps down from that oh right? yeah that Yeah, mo- like, it, yeah it, most of them are yeah. yeah and so it's i think it's super helpful to to see that and to just be able to see how enriching it is to just jump into that a little bit, and then realize that I, I kind of know what, like you you mentioned, what the rest of this gospel is going to be about. Right? Mm-hmm. If I if I can really dive in and understand those first couple of couple of chapters, and and some of these quotations and allusions and things that are that are taking place, it's going to be really helpful for me uh, to to have a lens to to view the rest of the gospel with. And yeah. so I think that's super super important.
1: And it, I mean, you know, Matt, the, the thing that's frustrating for people, for, for us, um, is because we got Netflix, we got lots of entertainment, um, and that crowds out the, I mean, frankly, it just crowds out the amount of time we spend in God's Word. Uh, Matthew's in a different situation where he didn't have to go and do the 15-minute discussion I just did. He just throws it out there and assumes that his readers are like, Oh, yeah, I know Jeremiah. I've heard that story. Oh, yeah, I remember. I know Rachel because she's like my tribal grandmother, whatever. Like, they just know that kind of stuff. So, th- what that means for us is that we just have to do more work. And as a pastor, it's like, I've, I've got to train my people to be able to see this. And I got to give them the story. And like, they got to know from Genesis to Malachi, like, what's the basic story keep telling that story because it really will help light bulbs go off in those kinds of moments and, and de foreign or it'll familiarize. It's uh, it'll make the story less kind of obscure and foreign to us and make us more familiar with it. But it just takes time. It takes work. I do. I do fundamentally think it pays off, but like any good thing, it takes time. Um, It's not something that's like, let me give you a verse and you'll be fine. It's like, no, that's not what we're talking about here. This is, you know, transformative. Um, but it requires a new kind of spiritual diet to, to get there. Um, yeah, anyway. Yeah, ab- absolutely.
0: And maybe, uh, just, just a couple minutes on, uh, the, the rest of the, the rest of the book. So the, the bulk of the books actually, after the tools chapters two through four, they kind of consist of tracing the new Testament authors engagement with the old Testament along these three major themes that these, uh, Put there in in chapters two through four, right? Articulating the gospel in terms of the saving work of God and history and the gift of salvation to individual believers, and then two, articulating the fullness of Jesus and his person and work, both as divine Son and human Savior, and then three, articulating the identity of the church as eschatological Israel, as well as its mission and conduct for today, and and, and so obviously. You know, we we don't have all the time in the world. And I want people to read the book, so I won't ask you to speak to all of these themes. But maybe let's just consider the the first uh, the first one there of mm-hmm. ar- articulating uh, the the gospel for a bit. So so thinking first about salvation accomplished in history, uh, how do the New Testament authors show us that the Old Testament is a witness to the storyline of the gospel, and, and how do they help us see? our present situation in salvation history through the lenses of the Old Testament. Yeah.
1: I mean, it's hard to do just one. In, in many respects, these three chapters are kind of a three-legged stool. There's a lot of relationships sure. among them. Yeah. And so it's hard to just pull one. Um, and and the reason why I wanted to, I didn't want to just give people the tools. What I wanted to try to do is actually have a thesis I was arguing uh, to, to make the tools worth Applying, if you will. And to the extent that anyone, uh, whether it's a uh, whatever your denomination is, most folks these days, I hope, and this is probably not universally true, but most folks have at least got a pretty some sort of feel that the Old Testament points to Jesus in some way, which, by the way, is a massive claim. I mean, that's a, that was huge for me to realize that. Uh, and, and most. Again, it's hard to be be overly journalistic, but I hope most churches at least nod in that direction. But my guess is most don't nod in the direction of the Old Testament is also instrumental to understand the gospel, with Jesus at the center, of course, uh, and to understand who we are as the church. So That's why I wanted to kind of piggyback on the Jesus shoulders, if you will. I mean, that's essential that the Old Testament Mm -hmm. points to Jesus, but really surrounding that is also the the salvation and, and the church. So there is a kind of intrinsic relationship there. But in terms of the gospel, um, and I did break it down in two different ways. One is kind of the broad story that we could call the gospel. And then the other is kind of the individual doctrines that radiate from the core of the gospel. In terms of the story, um, one of the things I've I've found particularly helpful, like with my own kids or in helping with youth ministry or children's ministry, and we've, we've done a lot at our own church kind of trying to, to instill this in our parents and the kids themselves and youth is recognizing that uh, the, the story of Jesus is the continuation of a story that has already been underway. Uh, in fact, prior to creation, actually, according to John, who was there prior to creation, the word of God was there, namely Christ himself uh, and your personal story. Uh, As an individual, especially in a world in which we're all, you know, much of the goods and bads of the past several years have shown us that everyone's trying to find a place in something beyond themselves, uh, a community to be a part of, a story to be a part of. And fundamentally, Scripture is the story. Um, And so that's what's so interesting. Whenever you get to Matthew 1, you're like, hey, let me tell you the story of Jesus. All right, kids, gather around. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let's go back to Abraham, right? That's what they do. It's like, well, Jesus doesn't come (laughs) out of nowhere. Yeah. He's not Superman born on, you know, just sort of coming in some space pod. No, he he goes back. He's continuing a story that's already been around. John does the same thing. Luke does the same thing. Paul does the same thing. They're always going back say, to understand the significance of the work of Jesus. You've got to understand that it's not this like, hey, let's just have a Messiah come out of nowhere um, to do some nebulous things that we're going to make up. Like, no, they're saying it all makes sense in light of creation, fall, Adam and Eve and god's slow uh progressive plan of redeeming a people back to himself from adam onwards and so it's it's actually quite staggering i do this in one of my paul classes uh is i i use verses from paul to essentially reconstruct the old testament um not the entire thing but it's it's quite he's a very obviously as a spirit-inspired apostle he is but I was actually kind of struck because I, I, I kind of started doing this somewhat recently. It's like, oh, you, you really can reproduce the entire Old Testament storyline from, you know, in, in 2 Corinthians when God spoke and, and called light into existence. That's how Paul phrases it. To Adam being the first man, Eve and Eve being deceived by the devil. God promising that through an offspring she would be redeemed. That's Genesis 3. And then Paul leans heavily on Abraham over and over again. Uh, he leans. he goes, you know, he goes, Isaac, he goes, uh, Rachel and Sarah, uh, excuse me, uh, Sarah and Hagar. I mean, he hits every. Then He he goes into the exile and David, uh, prior to that. And then, uh, he's riffing on Isaiah. He's quoting Habakkuk multiple times. And so it's like, you really can actually. And he, he hits a handful of Psalms. Like you really can reproduce the entire old Testament in it's in a nutshell, like in a skeleton form from Paul, which shows me. and, And the reason why I would do that. Is that Paul is not thinking of Jesus as this like big aha moment that comes out of nowhere. The way he's trying to teach his people and teach us in his writings is to see Jesus as a solution that history's been building up to. And he doesn't make any sense. His work doesn't make any sense. Why is he born as, as a human? Why? Why do we need that? You know? Uh, why uh, is he of this particular tribe? Uh, why? Is, you know? Why is he? from judah as opposed to levi or something like that why isn't he a priest uh what do we mean by messiah what does that even mean it's not what matrix which probably isn't relative or relevant for many people these days because it's over 20 years old now and i'm realizing that i'm getting old uh, and my movie references no longer <laughs> make any sense to yeah. the post gen x crowd but i yeah. digress um you know what how does the exile play into this all these different things paul as an example is sort of piecing together from the Old Testament. And then he says, and here's the kind of uh, highlight of all this. It's like In Galatians 4.4, 4, he says, at the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. Paul doesn't just say God sent forth his son. He says at the fullness of time, he does this, which, which implies there's this massive backstory that God has been working. And he's like, and now we've reached the point where we're gonna have a, we're going to have this massive climax, this turning point. And that's when Jesus comes in. So to make sense of Paul, you've got to make sense of the time before that that has reached his fullness. In other words, you got to start at Genesis 1-1 and work your way up. Uh, so Paul does that. The others do it. And then he says, look, by the way, you as a church are the people upon whom uh, all of these promises, which he's drawing on Isaiah in that particular context in Corinthians, uh, they All these promises have come upon you. You're now in the day of salvation. And so you just can't get around the idea that Paul thinks of the gospel as something that is linear, that has a timeline, that has a story that Jesus and his work and the church, it all fits into. So that's the kind of story part of it. And of course, I detail about that out in much more detail in the book. But then when you add to that, the sort of individual doctrines, such as, uh, you know, regeneration, regardless of how one construes it, it's most Christians hold to some form of regeneration, justification, sanctification, adoption, future glorification, faith, repentance. And I'm not doing it in order. I'm just sort of throwing them all out there. Uh, The striking thing to me is that every time one of those near and dear, like individual aspects of salvation, like your own personal justification, as an example, The New Testament authors never say, oh, by the way, here's this new thing that we just came up with, right? Here's this new thing that, like, (laughs) justification by faith through the grace of God. It's like, we've got this great idea. Because of Jesus, we got this whole new way this is all going to go down, and it's by grace now, and it's by faith. And I think a lot of churches kind of get—I certainly thought that. They give this impression that, like, the key doctrines by which an individual person is reconciled to God— that like just all of a sudden that starts happening. Uh, it's like, wow, that's cool, that's a whole new thing. And the, the weird thing is that they never do that. In fact, every single doctrine that goes into sort of a person's individual salvation, and again, you can prove this out, they, they, they define the terminology, they define the meaning of it, uh, they give examples of it, whatever it might be, from the Old Testament, which to me suggests, huh, Maybe they were saved the old, the, in the Old Testament the same way. Maybe it's not an innovation, actually. It's just the greater fullness that, that uh, it was pointing to in Christ. And so justification by grace alone, through faith alone, is not Paul's invention. He's just recovering it from Genesis 15, Psalm 32, and so on. Uh, that to me, I think, is actually—I mean, I could talk about this for hours—that that to me is a profoundly important— Theological point that really should reshape the way someone thinks about all of mm. the Bible. Actually, I mean it's a really big deal, uh, but we're running out of time.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's that's no, that's that's perfect because uh, on I'm going to quote you to you from page uh, 63 uh, of your book. You say the New Testament gospel is the Old Testament gospel remixed in Christ, and then a little bit lower on that same page, you say. The New Testament authors approach God's self-disclosure to Israel in the Old Testament as a wellspring for how we should understand salvation as accomplished in history and applied personally to lost sinners. And so I I think that's a really, really important point to see, especially because you also, uh, near the end of of this chapter on on the gospel, you say that there's really... uh, I mean, there's more than this, but but three benefits uh, that building Old Testament literacy would offer regarding this theme, right? Preserving the apostolic gospel, which number one, number two, presenting an intelligible gospel to newcomers. And then three, showing that the gospel is not just uh, about you, right? So mm-hmm. I, I think those are those are super important because I want to make sure that the the gospel I'm sharing, With someone is is the same gospel that that Paul shared, right? And sometimes cutting out this storyline feature, uh, one, it robs what the true apostolic gospel is, but it can be really confusing and almost like, I'll even say it, I think irrelevant to some people. In our culture of, of of just starting with okay, like what well, what is sin? Like why, yeah. why does Jesus? How do like, start with G? Like, who's Jesus? Right. You know. it's a, why why do I need that? I feel like and I'm why, doing why pretty do I good. With
1: pr- it. why do I need to pray a prayer to have him come into my heart? And then like what does that even mean? Right. None of the, like the, the, a whole century of sharing the gospel. I, I feel like has been the kind of this hyper individualistic Old Testament ignorant approach to doing it. Sadly, uh, that. Uh, hopefully we can sort of recover from it in a certain respect and give them a a bigger, more robust gospel. But um, uh, but yeah, sorry I sort of cut you off. But no, no, you're 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 you're
0: good. I I think it's just just so important, especially seeing you know somebody may be skeptical of like, you know, how how relevant is this to me in my you know walk, walk with Christ besides just Bible knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. Well, actually, it, it's way more than just I want you to know the Bible, right? As a as a pastor, you know, someone who's discipling you, it's like I want you to to know stuff. Right? I want right. you to grow in knowledge and wisdom of of who the Lord is, right? I think that's a command. You know, I think Paul prays that in Ephesians three, right? I, I want that for, you know, my people, but for them to also see like, well, I want you to have sound doctrine. I want you to share an accurate gospel. Right. right? I, I and, and I want you to be able to do that with your kids as you you evangelize them. I want you to be able to do that with coworkers, people in this church or your small group and, and be able to see that you know, it really does matter. It mattered to the New Testament authors that they helped their audience understand the Old Testament,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? To be able to articulate uh, true things, right? To, to be able to see uh, those shadows of things that were always there to shine light on that so that you can right. see them in their fullness. But if you just put a spotlight in somebody's face, they can't see anything, but right. the spotlight, <laughs> right? So, and so we actually know, need that. that furniture that was sit right. sitting there dimly yeah. lit, right? And and to turn the lights
1: on fully. Yeah, and it's interesting that you mentioned that this is how the apostles did it. Um, I, again, as someone in ministry, I totally understand why there's a temptation to dummy things down, and I get it because people have short attention spans. The Bible's hard. I get it. We just want them to know Jesus and invite them in their heart. I understand. I get that motivation. I don't. I completely disagree with that motivation, and and part of my part of my job, I tell my students, like my my job here is to make things more complicated, not less, um, <laughs> sure. because it is complicated. And so the the sad the sad thing that comes from this idea of like to make people interested in Jesus, we've got to really dummy it down. Is that I'm not sure that's what the culture even actually wants. Um, I think giving a simple, and overly simplistic, like you just got to pray this prayer, sign on the dotted line, you're going to go to heaven. It's like a that's not Christianity. B I'm not sure that's actually what people really want and what they need is something they can sink their te- teeth into something that is going to challenge them and push them uh and make them grow and invite them to something better and and so whenever you mention the apostles this is how they did it the thing that i find to be super challenging and really gratifying is uh seeing how paul does it in 1st corinthians and 1st corinthians of course is a fascinating letter because the corinthian church was a hot hot mess um, and part of the reason why they were a hot, hot mess is they were, by and large, because the Roman church wasn't like this and others weren't like this because they had a very strong Jewish presence. But by and large, the, the church at Corinth was birthed out of essentially almost almost all pagans. And Corinth was known to be just a debaucherous place. And so if you're thinking of a letter to a church that is the most relevant to us today, I would argue it's 1 Corinthians. You, have it, you could call it a de-churched city. Mm -hmm. A post-Jewish city, if you will, using the modern terminology, where sex was gratified, it was entertainment, lots of wealth, up-and-coming culture, but just utterly debaucherous. To Corinthianize meant to basically fornicate uh, in in their day, not our day. And so Paul's writing into that. And uh, what's fascinating about that, so he's he's trying to reach people who who theoretically know nothing about the Bible, no interest in in Jewish, Judeo-Christian values, which I think is exactly where we are today and in 1 Corinthians you have some of the most complicated uses of the Old Testament there are in the New Testament. And Paul's doing some very fascinating stuff and how he's got these like deep cut references to the Shema and so on. And so I look at that and I'm like, how did they know? Well, what what seems to have happened and he spent several months in Corinth is like, how would they have been able to pick up what he's throwing down when they're almost entirely pagan background people from a toxic culture? it implies that essentially what he did is he set them down and said, Hey, you're interested in Jesus. All right, open up Genesis. This is what we're going to do. We're going to read the old scriptures and I'm going to give you the story. And then we're going to talk about numbers. And we're going to talk about Moses going through the waters and all these different things. And then when he writes them, he's able to tap into that. And the point of all that is when Paul's trying to reach a thoroughly pagan city, arguably the most pagan city that he writes in any of his letters, uh, even Athens had better culture than Corinth did. Um, he he some whatever he did when he was there, he equipped them to read the Old Testament. Then when he writes his letter, he's making all of these very fascinating uh, echoes in reference to the Old Testament because he's taught them that, which implies that his first order of business after proclaiming Jesus is all right, let me give you some ballast, let me give you some background, let me explain who Jesus is. And how's he gonna do that? Well, he doesn't have Mark yet, you know. It hadn't been written, you know, he doesn't have John yet. That's 30 years out uh outward from there. So he goes to the Old Testament. So that to me, I think is actually sort of inspiring in the sense that it's like, okay, yeah, we got a pagan culture. Fine. Uh, that's going to have implications. What that means is not, I should run away from the Bible, right? I need to dummy it down and entertain people. No, I think we go the other direction. It's like, let's give them some real meat because nothing else is going to give them the real meat. Um, and ain't going to be some TV shows. So uh, why not? Why not lean into it and make Christianity robust and legit, and uh, and push people? So, I mean, uh, that's my hypothesis, but I think the Corinthian letter maybe backs me up on that. Uh, don't don't go the easy route; go the harder route and actually produce stronger Christians that way. But anyway, that's that's kind of my soapbox into the <laughs> to the spiel, I suppose. But
0: uh, no, that's that's awesome. I I totally agree. And uh, Doctor Lanier, I really appreciate you joining me for this conversation. It's been really fun to. Think through this and pray it's edifying for those who who listen uh, in later to, to this episode. I'm going to link to your book, uh, Old Made New, in, in the show notes. Uh, but thank you for joining me for this conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Sorry for getting a little
1: long-winded, but it is what it
0: is. Oh, it was, it was good, brother. Thank you. Listeners, if you enjoy the podcast— Please subscribe to the show if you haven't already. Share it with your friends and give it a good review, whether written or just clicking some stars on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps others find this show that may be interested in gospel-centered resources like this one. Also, if you have an idea for an episode or someone you'd like for me to interview, please reach out to me and let me know. Thank you, and until next time.